Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, here at KI beginning our Friday morning Torah study of Beha'alotcha, which means we are in the book of Numbers, chapter 8, verse 1. As we come out of the setting up of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the anointing and consecrating of all of the furnishings and all of the things uh, that are part of the ongoing ritual life in the Mishkan. And then we have all of the tribes bringing their different offerings. And now we come to Parshat Beha'alotcha. And somebody begin at chapter 8, verse 1. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, and say to him, When you mount the lamps, let the seven lamps give light at the front of the lampstand. Aaron did so. He mounted the lamps at the front of the lampstand, as Adonai had commanded Moses. Now, this is how the lampstand was made. It was hammered work of gold, hammered from base to petal. According to the pattern that Adonai had shown Moses, so was the lampstand made. All right, so we're going we're gonna to stay there for a second. Um, all right, so only after the Mishkan and all its appurtenances are uh, anointed can you have the beginnings of the ritual life of the Mishkan. So it, it had to be consecrated, right? It had to be erected and consecrated in order for now there to be the command to set up everything that's going to happen and actually begin the ritual life of, uh, of the people. So we get uh, God speaking to Moshe and saying that he is to speak to Aharon, he is to speak to Aaron, and tell him, because Aaron's going to be the functionary, right? Moshe has served as the officiant until now. Once the priests and the Levites are anointed and consecrated to service, Moses no longer has a right to officiate. It now becomes the role of Aaron and the other priests. But we still are dealing with Moshe because we're going to see in a minute that right, there's instruction for, for taking the people involved in this and consecrating them. All right, so when you... Mount the lamps, you Aaron. Let the seven lamps give light at the front of the lampstand. What the heck does that mean? So, El Mul Panay, right? El Mul Panay Hamenora. Let them give light this kind of phrasing of over and against, sort of, the lampstand. So there have been several different interpretations of this. Um, sometimes you will see the menorah represented with all of the lights tipping towards the central stock. I mean, the central, whatever that's called, thing, post. post. Um, and sometimes you will see it rendered with them tipping forward, all seven tipping forward. So... 
an, an interesting construction. So what, what linguistically would cue us, one of the arguments goes, that it is forward and not towards the center? If it was towards the center, how many lights would be involved? Six. Six. Not seven, right? Because if they're all facing center, then the center one is already center, right? So there would be six lights facing in. So some people point to that to say, all right, so it must mean something else. If all seven are forward, what does that mean? It means that the all seven of them are tipped forward in order for the menorah to throw light to the opposite direction of where it is placed. Yes. Couldn't um, another interpretation be that if the if the lamps were behind the lampstand, then you would have a shadow from the lampstand in front. In other words, it would be potentially distracting. Whereas if the lights are in front of the lampstand, whatever shadow there is is going to be behind it and it's not going to be distracting anybody. So the lamp stand holds the lights. Oh, oh, oh. So okay. then the question is, what does it mean that they are tipped? Okay. You know, so in other words, they're not straight sitting in the menorah. They are tilted. And the question is, are they tilted this way or are they tilted this way? Is this way toward the people? Well, that, yeah, yeah. what is the front? What is the front uh-huh. facing? That was the question. <laughs> so the people are outside, right? The people are not allowed inside the Mishkan, ever. So only the priests are ever inside the Mishkan. So then, but you're on the right track, right? Then where would it be, what would it be facing? Which what, is the where front, is right? it? Which is the front facing? Right. So if they're tipping front, they are throwing light towards the incense altar and the table with the showbread. So it would seem to make some sense, going to kind of what you were talking about, where the light is, it would make some sense that that would be a good thing, right? That the light's being thrown forward as the priest comes into that tent, that if the lights are tipped forward, they can see better as they do what they need to do with the showbread, showbread and the other altar and all that good stuff. What um, does it mean when it says when you mount the lamps? Are these lamps huge? What do you mean by mounting the lamps? So remember that we're dealing with oil and wicks. So it would sit in the actual lamp stand. You sit them in. It's like a cup with, it's a container of oil. And then you have to take them, you have to clean the wicks and do and replace the oil and do all that stuff. So you're going to mount those on the lamp stand itself. Um, now, when we see pictures of a menorah, generally, like there's one up on that wall, yeah, um, it's almost like everything's pointing up, right? Not facing anywhere, right? Hence, my little <laughs> discussion. Um, so the. So the, the light is um, lit. When is the menorah lit? Erev Shabbos. It is lit every Day. Erev. Really? Every evening. That is part of the ritual of the uh, Mishkan, is, and later, of course, the temple. 
is that the menorah is lit at night. So if it is lit at night, it makes some sense that throwing the light forward to the rest of the tent would be practical, right? That that would that would make sense. I assume there was no chandelier in the tent. There is no chandelier. So if that's not lit, there's no light in the tent. Right. So it's and you can't see. Right. So it's definitely something that um, can be used for, for, or, or the suggestion is that it's were also any, for light. Any, light. Were there any other lights in the Mishkan? I don't know. Well, if not, you would have have to light it. <laughs> Otherwise, you couldn't see anything. Yeah. Well, so right. That, that's why we have light in there yeah. for sure. Um, but I don't know if there's any other lights. There might have been. I don't know. Um, the menorah that we're dealing with here is a very, there's, you know, sometimes scholars are like, what? Like not, you know, there's no evidence for this or that. But the description that we get here um, there with this, this description of um, hammered gold from base to petal, um, there's a descri- descriptions in Exodus as well of the menorah. And it's, it seems that this is a very, very old tradition uh, in Israel, that this is an ancient design that is Bronze Age, and a lot of what we're talking about happens, um, the writing of Torah, all that stuff happens, a lot of it in the Iron Age. The Bronze Age is older, and uh, this is a design, what we see, the description of the menorah that we see is a design um, very popular in Egypt in the Bronze Age. So probably this is a very, very old tradition. This In, menorah the seven, hmm? including, including the, seven. the seven. The seven is an ancient motif uh, in the Bronze Age in the ancient Near East, uh, and this the, the way it's there's a double thing and a the way the pedestal is and the petals and all of that is very much the agricultural motif is very much um, an Egyptian Bronze Age, and we know exactly when it begins and exactly when that motif dies out. So it's, it's early. It's replaced by like a metal tripod base um, at a very clear time in history. Did Adonai uh, show Moses earlier uh, what the pattern would be? Because that's what it says. Yeah, it says According to the pattern that Adonai had shown Moses. Yeah. So, so does that actually happen in... So we get an exodus, an exodus. Remember when we're getting all the instructions for the Mishkan? And you shall make... what I have for breakfast, Rabbi. In exodus, we had a description of, and you shall make a menorah, blah, 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 blah. And now we got, and they made the menorah, blah, 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 blah. And now we get the consecration of everything, and then they're going to erect everything and start making it work. So somewhere there was a description of the pattern. Correct. In Exodus 37 and Exodus 25, we get several mentions of the, of the menorah. All right. Why seven? Is it for good luck? Why seven? Somebody want to answer that question? Why seven? Lucky number. Seven days a week, seven days of creation. That's for us. Always seven. Always seven. It is a powerful number. It is the number of completion, of fullness. It is a magical number in the ancient world, uh, in this neighborhood of the world. At this time, it is absolutely understood to be one of the power numbers. 
Um, that is why we have the seven days of creation um, and why we have festivals that are how long? Seven days. Sometimes we eight. have Sometimes. Eight. 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 Don't forget seven on the dice. <laughs> is that a good it's thing? Six. Well, you need two dice. Is seven a good number? Oh, yes. Okay, so there you go. It's still with us. It's still with us. Um, <clears throat> so interesting that seven is completion. Eight is that which is beyond completion. Turn an eight on its side, and what do you get? Infinity. Infinity. So there is a sense of eight is, is, is even beyond. It's the beyond creation. It's beyond fullness. It's kind of something else. Is seven important in other Semitic cultures? Uh, it is. It is. I thought we celebrated some holidays, eight days, to make sure that we get the right, right. days in Israel and Jerusalem. Correct. For the rule of seven. Correct. Yeah. And the counting of the Omar, seven sevens. <clears throat> right? Plus right. 49 is seven 49. sets of seven. 100%. Jubilee year. Jubilee year. And then the Counting uh, the Omer. Seventh, seventh generation. I mean, there's... Uh, until the seventh generation. Right? These are... It is very, very much a uh, symbolic number. So you can imagine there is lots that the tradition does with the idea of menorah, that which gives light. Um, I'm going to share one with you at the end of class, which I love. I just love, love, love. But right now we're going to go to verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the Israelites and purify them. This is what you shall do to them to purify them. Sprinkle on them water of purification, and let them go over their whole body with a razor, and wash their clothes. Thus they shall be purified. Let them take a bull of the herd, and with it a grain offering of choice flour with oil mixed in. And you shall take a second bull of the herd for a purification offering. You shall bring the Levites forward before the tent of meeting. Assemble the whole Israelite community, and bring the Levites forward before the Lord. Let the Israelites lay their hands upon the Levites and let Aaron designate the Levites before the Lord as an elevation offering from the Israelites that they may perform the service of the Lord. The Levites shall now lay their hands upon the head of the bulls. One shall be offered to the Lord as a purification offering and the other as a burnt offering to make expiation for the Levites. Okay. Wow. This is really cool. <laughs> but not cooler than passing the torch. <laughs> but not cooler than passing the torch. Although I got a lot of sleep last night, so everything's really cool. All right, so, <laughs> Take the Levites from the midst of the people Israel, and purify them. So you are going to do this and you are going to purify, you're going to cleanse them, and you're going to sprinkle on them water of purification. We get this interesting thing of going over the body with a razor. Um, and this is all so that the Levites can be what? Ritually pure. Why? What's going to happen to them? They're serving at the Mishkan. First, what happens? They're going to be... They're going to be what? 
An offering. Yes. Yeah, they have to do their offering. They have to go up. They are an offering. What does that mean? They become the offering. You lay your hands on them the same way you Israelites lay your hands on the goat that you're about to offer. And you designate they. When you you do this with a goat, you put your hands on it, you're saying, I transfer... Right, that, that now I'm I'm designating this as a, an offering. I designate it as belonging to God and the priests. Right, it's now in a different realm. And when I do that, I am shifting onto the goat. What? What happens? Sin. Your sin. It's very interesting. All my impurity. I transfer onto the goat agency in a way about what should happen to me because I sin. Right? So what should happen to me is that some is right, right, that I should have to pay the penalty. But I transfer that to the goat. Right? This is common in the ancient world. I'm not making a big deal because it was uncommon. It's it's an interesting thing because we're not going to have it with the Levites. So what happens to the goat is Right, but there are other times things are offered, and that same transfer happens where they're not killed. Right, it's just designated. That's clearly what's happening with the Levites. Clearly, this is not about sacrificing the Levites. God forbid. But that's what the. But isn't that what the bull is for? In so other words, it's transited. It, passes in other words, it happens twice. So it happens twice. But and the first one is the people, people the offering the Levites. Why? What's happening here? What are the Levites offered as? It's, why do we have to have this? What does this even do? Does it confirm their allegiance to serve God? Or? What happened with the whole Korach business? Remember our buddy Korach? Yeah, he, he, they killed him. God killed him. <laughs> Somebody killed him. God killed him. Right? So we had a whole instance. I mean, it's coming up. Korach is coming up. I'm trying to figure out how many partiot. We have a whole instance of right this messiness that can lead to really, really dire consequences. When there is encroachment on the sancta, there is a penalty to be paid. When someone who is not supposed to be in a certain sacred space does that, it's encroachment and it triggers a big cosmic explosion. Yet Aaron's sons also. Aaron's sons are the perfect example of this, yes? The people offer the Levites so that they become the ones who are responsible for encroachment so that the people are safe. The Levites are offered up as the lightning rod so that the people can back away. We're going to leave the Levites over there and hands off, right? So, So the Levites are not special. The Levites are not different. The Levites are designated 
by the people as their offering so that encroachment is now their responsibility. Yes? So that if something goes wrong, it's the Levite guards who die and the people are safe. In other words, if some if some if some curious non-Levite wanted to see what is going <laughs> what on, what exactly is in there, and they and they manage to get in, they don't get zapped. Whoever was supposed to be guarding the door gets zapped. Correct. Okay. Therefore, the Levites. You'll read elsewhere in Torah. If an Israelite is trying to encroach, a Levite is allowed to kill them. Mm-hmm. Why? Isn't that murder? It seems a little well, it's harsh. Like, it's like the Secret Service. <laughs> okay. Somebody who tries to tries to assassinate the president. And what is the underlying justification for I can kill you as a CIA agent if I suspect you're coming at the president? What's the underlying? Well, that the well, you know, that the, 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 the president represents such, a, you know, is such a national symbol that sort of the preservation of the continuity of that symbol trumps, you know, some person's desire to. Make a statement, harm the harm okay. whatever. And taken one step further, what if he succeeded in killing the president? The, so, so then there's a then there's a then there's a hearing, and that and that agent may lose their job. But or, the president is still dead. Yeah. So the president is presumably allowed to defend herself. Right. That is the presumption here. If the Levite is okay. going to get killed for the Israelite encroaching, then the Israelite approaching encroaching. <laughs> becomes a direct threat to my life as a Levite. I have the right to defend myself. Yes? That is the underlying reason Levites are allowed to use whatever it's called. The ultimate force. What was that called? Lethal force. That's why. Because of this. They have been offered up right, to be the protectors and to take the hit for the Israelites. And therefore, they have a right to defend themselves against encroachment for which they will pay the price. So that's what's happening here. Blanche? I heard the word daughters, and I'm confused. Uh, Were the daughters to be killed? God forbid. No, no, nobody's killed. Nobody's killed. Unless they're getting ready to do something that's going to get somebody else killed. Right? So the daughters do not serve. Okay. Only males of a certain age serve. And we're going to look at that, too. The Svadimet has some interesting things to say about that. You the, mentioned Korach for some reason. Korach. Korach, yes. Didn't he challenge uh, Moses? He did. Yeah, but why did you mention it? Um, because it, it's, a, it's a place where they... They encroached, essentially, and all 250 of them were obliterated. And then, you know, like a bunch of their families, like, go into the ground. You know, it's, it's a disaster. And the people don't want to be, a, they're afraid now of this fire pan, like, Mishkan business. They're, right? So this is a way to, to have only the Levites deal with the risks associated with the Mishkan so the people can relax. There's a very democratic principle here, in a sense. Even though the people didn't choose the Levites, the without the people blessing, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, the Levites. Offering them. Offering them. 
then the Levites can't be Levites. I mean, they can't do what they do. Exactly right. Now, this is different from the priests. Yes. It was Moses. So you have these two poles. On the one hand, you have the Moses who anoints... It was Moses who anoints the priest. Correct. Moses anoints the priest. Aaron. And then, uh, Aaron. And then the people, which is a very... I mean, we come to today something like... You know, Reconstructionism in our synagogue with the democratic principle, it's a connection with this. Yes. Then it, it takes the people offering the Levites for them to now be able to protect the Mishkan on behalf of the people. Okay. So let's see at 13 what happens from there. Excuse me, the elevation offering, is that what? We were talking about. Yes, and that's how we know, right? So this is to be, this is different from a one where it's slaughtered, right? So that's very good, close reading, Ruben. Yes, the tnufa, right? So it's a wave offering. A, it should be lifted. Okay. You shall place the Levites in attendance upon Aaron and his sons and designate them as an elevation offering to the Lord. Thus you shall set the Levites apart from the Israelites, and the Levites shall be mine. Thereafter the Levites shall be qualified for the service of the tent of meeting, once you've purified them and designated them as an elevation offering. For they are formerly assigned to me from among the Israelites. I have taken them for myself in place of all the first issue of the womb, of all the firstborn of the Israelites. For every firstborn among the Israelites, man as well as beast, is mine. I consecrate them to myself at the time that I smote every first I consecrated them to myself at the time that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now I take the Levites instead of every firstborn of the Israelites, and from among the Israelites I formally assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons to perform the service for the Israelites in the tent of meeting and to make expiation for the Israelites so that no plague may afflict the Israelites for coming too near the sanctuary. Encroachment. Right. Now, so what happens is the Levites are designated by the people and then placed in attendance on Aaron, who will deploy them. Now, what are they what are they taking the place of? We said it protects the Israelites from being, right, the innocent, from being a plague breaks out whenever encroachment happens. Terrible things happen to the innocent as well as the guilty. So they are to protect the innocent Israelites from what happens when you have a nuclear, right, explosion. It contaminates innocent and guilty alike. Um, but who was originally implicated in having to do that? Firstborn. The firstborn. The, they are sacral. The firstborn have a sacral status. They, by virtue of the fact that God slew the firstborn of Egypt, they have a sacred role that is being redeemed. They are being redeemed from that role here by the designation of the Levites. The people offer up the Levites in place of the firstborn. Why do you still have yeah. opinion of them? So there is still this remnant of the 
sacral position of the firstborn, and we have no Levites anymore to to take that off of them, right? So, because that's something the Levites do not become. They do not have a sacral position. They are designated and offered on behalf of those who do. They're a substitute. Does that make sense? But they're not the real thing. Sweet and low is not sugar. So... What about the firstborn among the Levites? <laughs> yeah. See, so it gets very complicated. But why? Can somebody make it a little bit cooler in here? It's really stuffy, and I'm very warm. Why, why is it necessary to designate one portion of the Israelites, the Levites, to do this instead of having a representative from all the people as the firstborn? Huh? Um, so, so the firstborn are the ones who are who who do belong to God. That is their sacral position. They belong to God because of what happened in Egypt. The Levites are now going to redeem them from service by standing in. They're being designated by the people to stand in for the firstborn. Isn't this because they because it's not because it's a risky position. It's not a great thing. Right, it's you, you're at risk, so it's a dangerous position. But isn't it like the giving of first fruits? That somehow, when you have a blessing, which comes from God, that you give to God before you take for yourself, and so that's why people bring first fruits. And in a sense, isn't that kind of like what's behind the firstborn? Uh, no, that makes me a little nervous. Um, no, I don't. I don't mean that there's something special about the firstborn as a person, but that. And again, we don't sacrifice people. Oh, you mean first the, fruits, firstborn? Yes. Right. That, that's yes. A, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a relationship. So I right. I just want to be not that I sacrifice. Right. Right. That's what. That's what was Abraham, making me Abraham nervous. Abraham made it very clear the whole <laughs> that right, the we whole don't do that. that we don't do that. We don't do that. But, so right. There's kind of like a remnant. That is of that. their sacral position. Maybe I wasn't clear. That that's exactly what it is. Peterechem, that which opens the womb for the first time, has a sacral status, including humans, fruit, trees, crops, animals. And humans, and and the sacral of those belong to God. So, what does that usually mean? It means you take them to the temple, you, you turn them over to God, meaning for the usage of God's folks who are involved in that stuff. This, this was revolutionary because at that time, children and firstborn were still being sacrificed by other cultures. So, this is a claim made by some that other cultures are still literally. Offering their firstborn, or some you know, some kind of offering of human to the gods. There is a claim of that. We're not sure about that. We do um, know about Mexico. We, that we do. People five hundred years ago were still being. We do. Still human. So, and we know what happened in the ancient world. We're not sure how frequently. We're not. It's some of some of the references to that in Torah. We think might be Israel's maligning. Of their neighbors. What's the worst thing you can say about what they do down the street at that other place? What's the worst thing you could say? They, 
they kill, they eat their children, right? And so and we've been accused of that. And exactly, the blood libel against the Jews was that we put infant Christian babies' blood in matzah, right? And this was an excuse for pogroms and all kinds of things. So it is very much the way if you want to charge up folks against how horrible those other people are, you charge them with killing babies. So. Um, Anyway, so, th- so there's some reason to believe that that might be what's going on in our text that reference that with other people. It's, it's, it's understood from the text that when we refer to the firstborn, we're talking about male children. Correct. Okay. Because I was, I was looking in the text in, at the very beginning of Exodus when Pharaoh commands the, the firstborn to be killed. There it's explicit that if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let her live. Right. Whereas other places, it just talks about firstborn and doesn't distinguish. But right. It's automatic that they're talking about. When it says man and beast, is, is, it, is it only male gender for the beasts too? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes it is a female that's offered... Right. But that might be a, that but that might be a different thing up. than Peter Rechem or, or um, the first. That's a good question. But asking for, I do for, not know. But for people, but I expect that you'll have our, the answer for us next week. Yes? <laughs> so I will research it. All right, excellent. All right, so um, let's, look, let's just close out this paragraph from 23. Somebody read it, 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is the rule for the Levites. From 25 years of age up they shall participate in the workforce in the service of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50, they shall retire from the workforce and shall serve no more. They may assist their brother Levites at the tent of meeting by standing guard, but they shall perform no labor. Thus you shall deal with the Levites in regard to their duties. All right, so the Levites' service... What qualifies and disqualifies them for service is what? Age. Age is the passage of time. Yes? What disqualifies a priest from service? That's what, that's what qualifies them. What disqualifies them? Who are the priests who cannot serve? Ones who have been made unholy, have done something Contact with the dead? So there can be a state where they are not ready to serve because they have corpse contamination, but other times they can. Who are the priests who can never serve? Those who have a physical defect. If something is physically defective, and I'm using that word because that's the word, right, as Torah understands it, not because I understand it that way, um, then they are disqualified from service. So no ADA then. So no ADA. So So then Israelites in general are to be living in right relationship with the divine by bringing their first fruits, by leaving the edges of their crops, for the poor, right? They're, they're given lots of instruction about how to live in right relationship with the divine based very much in the relationship to the land. Right. Let's see what this Fatimet does with this.
Oh, wait, this is the menorah, never mind. So, the Svada Met says to us, Bless you. I have a question. Yes. Until when in our history was this observed about not allowing a priest who uh, has some physical defect to serve? All the way through, presumably, the destruction of the temple. Seven temple. Seventy. No more priests. Seventy. Seventy of the common area. Once there are no priests, it's not an issue. So it never was an issue for rabbis. No. God forbid. Good. We who are defective are allowed to serve <laughs> as rabbis. Thank God. Encouraged, in fact. All right. Hashira Tilia Bazman says the Svaramen. What are the Levites' job in the temple from for the most part? In temple times, what did they do? They were the musicians, they were the orchestra. They were the choir. They sang. That's what they did. They made music. They sang and they played instruments. Um, Psalm 150 that lists all the instruments. That was the you know Levitical orchestra. They were the band. They were the band. The band. They, they were the orchestra. orchestra that gave fullness of sound to the experience of right the Israelites as they worship and as a form of worship. And music, as we know, says the Svaremet, Talebazman, is dependent on time, rhythm, meter, right? Music is dependent on time. Vilachain, and how do we know this also that it, that's related to time, is that we are given a song for every single day because every day is absolutely new and so it has its own song. Lovely. Vinir'ah, that it was the Levites in particular who had a special relationship to this this aspect of time. And there are shalosh bechino. There are three aspects. What are they? Olam, space, shana, time, and nefesh, person. And every human being is obligated in their own particulars to deal with all three. Yisrael and the whole people of Israel. Every one of us is obligated, says the Svaremet. In other words, this is a God forbid we should think this is just about the Levites and the Kohanim, God forbid, right? That's one level. What's the important eternal level and teaching of this? is that there are three aspects, space, time, and person. And every one of us is obligated litakein hamakom vehazman. Each one of us is obligated to repair the place and the time hamiyuchad lo betikun nafsho. That is particular to that person through the agency of their self, their nefesh. Do you understand what he's just done? The Levites have a special relationship to the realm of time. And the Kohanim, the priests, have a special relationship to this idea of, of self, of body, you know, of integrity that way. And the Israelites about space in general, 
right? Living in relationship to the land and taking care of each other and all of those things and where you put a fence and where you don't and put a parapet on your roof or somebody might fall off, right? So each, this is symbolic of what it is to be human and what our ongoing charge is, is that each one of us is obligated to make a tikkun, to rectify, to heal the particular time and space we are given, each one of us, that only we, in other words, only we can make that tikkun with our particular nefesh, our particular self. Would the commentator be willing to go so far as to say that we are our own unique song in the universe? Lovely. Lovely. That each of us is a song miyuchad. Unique. Lovely. So each one of us, right, has to figure out that is our work in the world. That is our service. That is what we are truly called to do. The rest of this stuff is just stuff. The real reason we're here, the real work of being here is to make this tikkun of time and space that only each one of us can do in our own way with our own nefesh, with our own self. And practice is about how to discern what that tikkun is in any given moment that only I can do. Is he saying around me? I mean, is this, <clears throat> is this that my obligation is to fix that which is around me and that I may or may I mean, it would be nice if I could fix the whole world, which sometimes I certainly can work for. Right. But that the world around me is my first responsibility, like my family and my community. And the Sfada Met most likely would say, we can only affect the tikkun that we can affect. The President of the United States, who we mentioned earlier, might be able to impact the world. Maybe that's his job, but that's not my job. I don't, right? It's my unique gifts and talents and challenges and weaknesses call me to make a tikkun where I can. And where I can do that is at KI. I hope. I mean, I hope. That's, that's the goal is to figure out and to live into as best we can what is the tikkun I can do. So it has to begin with what's around us. It has to. That's the, that's the only place it can begin because it's ours miyuchad. It's ours uniquely. Rabbi, who are you quoting there? I'm quoting the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger. You've heard me teach him before, the Gerer Rebbe. And, uh, who, and great Hasidic masters are often called by the name of their work. His work put together by his students, you know, notes on his teachings by his students is called the Sfat Emet, the language of truth. Um, and he's one of my favorite teachers. Uh, whenever we're looking at, okay, so what does this have to say to me today? This Levite business, why do we still read this? Right, you know, because the, throughout the generations, our people have said, because there's more here, if we choose to go there, we choose to read all of, the lessons of our time through the lens of this story. When did he live? I don't know his years. He what century? century? Yeah, nineteenth century. But he's I'm a, in a, a city in Gare, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's beautiful about this to me is that everybody's space is slightly different and everybody's talents are different. And this seems to have recognition of that responsibility to make the most of that. Absolutely, that's what he's saying, Sarah. Beautifully restated, yes. Each of our space is a little different. Each of our nefesh is a little bit different because of our biographies and our genetics and our proclivities. And, and it is our obligation to use all of the uniquenesses of that to do the tikkun that only we can do, right? Only I can do the one that's, you know, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago, you know, L.A. Like, oh, my space is different from someone, right? Someone else's. And only I can do that tikkun with that set of crazinesses that I call my life. And, and that, is, that is the real work of being here, is to do that. That, yes, we have a job. Yes, we parent. Yes, we have chores. Yes, 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 and yes. The real work is this work of tikkun which I think is a profound and beautiful teaching, right, by the, by the rabbis. And if we all do it, then, if we all do it, then bimhe rabi amenu, halavai, it will come speedily and in our day that Mashiach would be here, the Messianic age would arrive, right, and everybody would live in peace and live into their full potential. That's all. That's all. <laughs> um, but Lisa, that's, that's exactly his point. When he says, I kind of read it quickly, but when I said that he says, um, not only each individual, Yisrael, and, and all the people, so each one of us individually, and then Klal Yisrael collectively. If we're each doing this individually, then... Collectively, the entire world, he's only concerned with the people of Israel, but presumably if everybody did it in their way, because we're past there as progressive Jews, if everyone did that, if everybody in the world was doing their unique part to repair what only they can with their full self, then, yes, the whole thing would be repaired. The whole thing. And we would be living in Yemen Mashiach. We would be living in the Messianic age. Um, and that, that is not an argument, <coughs> excuse me, against trying to heal the world on a broader no, sense. God it doesn't forbid. mean you just no. concentrate on what's no. around you. God forbid. <clears throat> As I said, if I have the, if I have the capacity mm-hmm. to impact further than my world, mm-hmm. I am obligated to do that. And if not, it doesn't free me from doing what I can do, which might be just this little spot here. Yes. Rabbi Tarfon, Pirkei Avot, says we are not obligated to complete the task. You are not obligated to complete the work, neither are you free to desist from beginning it. All right. Lovely. I gave away my copy. No, I didn't. Okay. So somebody want to read the seven lamps of the menorah that I just gave you? Excuse me, the, the uh, quote from the Gerah Rabbi is not in here. It's not. Because okay. I, I, I uh, just translated it from the Hebrew, so I can make a copy of this for you. I don't have the book with the English in front of me, so I couldn't make but, you a copy. It exists. It exists. Art Green is the one who wrote mm. the translation and the commentary, and the book is called 
uh, The Language of Truth. It is a fabulous, fabulous book. Because Where are we on this? We are now here. Yes, the beginning. A very good place to start. But you're not obligated to finish. <laughs> Can I, before we start? Please, Laura. In this question of, you know, what can we affect with our connection in all our world, um, always challenges me because if you think of people who aren't the president, they're not in an official capacity where they've got the ability through their role to affect the world, and yet they do. And what is it that makes that kind of a person so special, or maybe there's not a specialist about them that says, I'm going to make this happen. What makes a Martin Luther King Jr., or what makes any person who's able to go beyond the physical proximity of their life? And then well, it's almost sort of a cop out to say, Well, I, I can't do it because I'm just me. Or maybe it's not a cop out, maybe it's saying, You know what, I don't have, and I don't need to feel that I'm somehow falling down on my obligation because I'm not achieving all those things. I mean, I think that's something I wrestle with. How do you justify not going forward and making a huge difference? Because people have done it. Martin Luther King didn't know he was going to be Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King started where he started, did what he could, was called to do more. More, more people followed his call. Right then, he's obligated to different things because people responded to what he did. They may not respond to me that way. It may not be my particular talent. It may not be my time. It may not be the place in which I'm put. To, so it still starts... It just starts with what I'm called to do right now. Then, as a result of that, I might be called to something else. Right? And then, but it's not my business to say, how big am I going to get? How big is my impact going to get? It, it's none of my business. The universe will take care of it. If I just keep living into what I'm called to do right now in the realm of space and time with my unique nefesh, my unique self, it will unfold to what it's supposed to be or what it's going to be, right? You know, and, and we don't know what that is. And so teachings like this, the reason I find them so important and so helpful is because it does say, you don't get to say just because I'm not going to be Rosa Parks, I shouldn't do anything. It's like, it doesn't, it's not comparative. It's you have your little space-time nefesh business going on, do it. Don't worry about how big or how small. It's not, it's not our business. Right. I think that, that the flip side is people can feel, well, I'll never make the kind of impact that another person has made. So why start or what, you know, what, throw up your hand. And, and again, this is why they use the language of meyuchad, uniquely. Why should you bother? Because only Laura Diamond can do certain things. No one else can do it. That's why you have to do it. Because only you can do the tikkun of your makom, your place, your, right? Your zman, your time, with your unique nefesh. Only you can do that work. Lisa can't. She might want to, but she can't. 
you have to follow your own inner voice, your own personal call. Because only you can do that. And that is a very different approach than our quantitative, you know, or qualitative measuring of people's contributions. It's to say, you uniquely can do this tikkun. Only you can. That, that, that is a responsibility that doesn't let you off the hook. Doesn't matter if it's small. You still have to do it because only you can do it. How, that's amazing to me. I mean, that's a fantastic, because it values each person's contribution by saying it's unique. That guy right there can only do his tikkun. No one else can do what he's going to do. It's not our business what it is. There's a sense of obligation. 100%. We are, we are obliged. This goes back to we are created in God's image. We're obliged to understand who and what we are and then to use that as best we can. 100%. Everybody Absolutely. can't be Martin Luther King. Because we don't need everybody to be Martin Luther yeah. King. I can only he be the best He wouldn't have been me. anything without the people who sweated and marched and collapsed behind him. But we each have our jobs. We each have our... The world needs schleppers. The hundred percent. And so, for some people, schlepping is, and it's not less than being the leader. Oh, uh, hello. What did we just get done yeah. reading about schlepping, right? About the Kohatites and the Merorites and the Huawites is, right? They schlepped the stuff. That's a sacred obligation, schlepping the stuff. Yeah. There's a wonderful quote I remember from a graduation which was, in the history of the world, every person has really always only been just one person. Right, right. Exactly. With no more than 24 hours a day. And so then the challenge becomes, what are we doing to cultivate real discernment and awareness about what the tikkun is that only I can do in this space, time, with my nefesh? Right? That, that's the work. And it's not easy work, by the way. But that is the goal of spiritual practice, would the Svaramet say. That's the whole point, is to make sure we are creating the, the ways that we nurture our sense of what is the tikkun I am called to right now, in this moment, in this space, with my particular me. And that is not easy. But beyond that, also as Jews, there is our collective tikkun yeah. as well. So it's not just about, it starts with me, but it's not only about Chas v'shalom. Right. It, it's not just Blame. about me. And it can't happen without me. Mm-hmm. We each have to do our own. And then as we said, collectively, there you go. All right, so let's get to this menorah business that I promised you. Someone read the Behalotcha Seven Lamps. Speak to Aaron and tell him, when you light the lamps, the seven lamps should shine towards the center of the menorah. Why does the Torah emphasize this particular detail, that the seven lamps should face the center of the menorah? Why not begin with the overall mitzvah to light the menorah each evening? 
Also, what is the significance of the menorah's seven branches? All right, obviously this interpretation has the lights tilting towards the center, center branch. That's fine. Well, like we're, we have lots of interpretations. That's all groovy. Um, so, but the question becomes, so why, why is that the first thing that's said here? Why not you shall light the menorah in the evening and then give us details? Why does it start with this crazy detail? And why seven? Okay. The sages wrote that the menorah represents wisdom and enlightenment. All wisdom has a common source, but there exist different approaches to wisdom. Every individual pursues those spheres of knowledge to which he is naturally drawn. The Midrash compares the seven lamps of the menorah to the seven planets in the solar system illuminating the nighttime sky. What is the meaning of this symbolism? Many of the ancients understood that the planets and constellations influence our nature and personality traits. A person under the influence of Mars, for example, will have different traits than one under the influence of Jupiter. In other words, God created each of us with a unique character in order that we should perfect ourselves in the particular path that suits us. In this way, all of creation is completed. Through the aggregation of all individual perfections, the universe attains overall perfection. Just as each planet symbolizes a distinct character trait, each branch of a menorah is a metaphor for a specific category of intellectual pursuits. God prepared a path for each individual to attain wisdom according to his, own, his or her own character and interests. So this relates to what we just studied from the Svatimet, right? So why seven branches? Because if you look in the Talmud, you shouldn't think that they weren't completely influenced by astrology. Seven, pla- seven planets in the nighttime sky. <laughs> they can only see six. Don't know. Um, but in Bami Baraba, right, it says there's seven. So there then, so that's your seven. What does that mean? All of us are born under one of those seven. What does that mean? We know that when you're born and what constellations are where when you're born means everybody's a little bit different, right? There's, you know, kind of these, these different ways, these different, you know, zodiac signs, if you will, different categories, and what it represents through the menorah. Menorah is wisdom. Menorah is enlightenment. And that means that we shouldn't think everybody gets to wisdom and enlightenment the same way. Everybody is drawn in their own way to that which will serve to bring them to a place of enlightenment and to a place of wisdom. And we should honor the uniqueness of different ways and different paths to enlightenment, which I love this because this is normative Jewish teaching in the Midrash and in the Talmud. That this is normative for us to say there is not one right way. There is not one right path. There are many ways because we're all different and they are each valid. They are each equally wonderful. It doesn't matter, in other words. What matters is that you follow yours. But, read on. However, we should be careful not to follow our natural intellectual inclinations exclusively. The Torah stresses that when you light the lamps, when we work towards that individual enlightenment that suits our particular character, 
we should take care that this wisdom will shine towards the center of the menorah. What is the center of the menorah? This is the wisdom of the Torah itself. We need to draw specifically from the light of Torah, whose source is the underlying unity of all wisdom. In truth, the seven branches of the menorah are not truly distinct separate paths. All seven receive light from the unified wisdom with which God enlightens his world. For this reason, the menorah was fashioned from a single piece of gold, mikshach zahav. The special manner in which the menorah was formed reveals the underlying unity of all forms of wisdom. Lovely. So now another teaching is not just that there's different ones, but that they should shine towards the center. We should be leaning our intellectual inclination towards, right? What is the Torah I'm supposed to learn and out of which I'm supposed to serve? And this is why it says that it is made out of one piece of gold. Because it's a unity. We shouldn't think, God forbid, that because we get to enlightenment or wisdom in different ways, that they're different, that they're separate. All wisdom comes from the only one. Yes? All real wisdom is part of the one. And this is why it should shine towards the center and why it is made of one piece of gold. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.